Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I'm your host, Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. We just spent two weeks talking about current events, but it's time to get back to our roots for an hour and talk to a historian about his life. Today's historian is Richard Driver, an assistant professor of history at McLennan Community College in Waco, Texas. We're going to talk about Richard's background and his career, and we're also going to spend some time talking about his research into 20th century musicians, their backgrounds, and the work that they put into their craft. What is your name and what do you do? Hi there, I'm Richard Driver, and I'm an assistant professor of history at McLennan Community College in Waco, Texas, and I teach history, primarily the um, U.S. History Survey courses for um, introductory level, freshman level. Um, as a as a faculty member here at a community college, I my teaching opportunities range from your traditional sixteen week model to online offerings. I also teach dual credit through uh, our high school partners here in Waco. Um, in addition to that, I teach as an adjunct for um, SNHU, as well as I teach as an adjunct for Texas Tech University, which is my alma mater. I teach through their um, higher education site here in Waco, Texas. That is a lot of teaching. And so we'll, we'll come back and talk about that in a little bit. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Yes. Um, I have a PhD in American history. I um, was granted that by Texas Tech University in 2014. My dissertation and research, um, the, the fun answer I like to give is that it's on rock and roll. But the reality is it's far more complex than that. It's really about work culture in the United States from roughly the Depression through the 1970s. My dissertation built on sort of changes in opportunities for amateur musicians to become not necessarily professional, but to gain work opportunities that meant that when they maybe lost a job during the Depression, they could supplement their income or they could simply replace their income. And I worked from those ideas through uh, post-World War II rock and roll um, individuals like Buddy Holly, which was um, a great research opportunity with Texas Tech being in Lubbock, Texas, which is Buddy Holly's hometown, mm-hmm. through my own you know, personal fandom with the Beatles to Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, and I did some research on Nirvana even. Ultimately, I didn't use um, some of those materials fully, but my dissertation sort of explored how musicians are workers, and we often overlook that. Um, and it was it was an exciting research, really kind of, re- uh, it felt like, I felt like it revealed a lot uh, for me as a fan and a listener to the work that goes into being a musician, not simply from recording, but touring to all the avenues that come with that. Um, Prior to that, I I earned an an MA also from Texas Tech. My MA thesis was more specifically about the Beatles and consumption. And so um, I've been down a popular music um, research line my entire academic background. That is... A fascinating topic, and I'm tempted to just spend the whole hour talking about that. Um, when you, because I think you're, you're, I mean, you've obviously you've got something right there, or it seems it's it seems right that there's an issue or kind of a disconnect between because we yeah, we always hear about bands being like working class people. You know, the the Beatles had you know they were not privileged as children, and you know Bob Dylan. There, there's a lot of uh, we we always hear about kind of working class origins about bands, but at the same time we generally hear about bands once they've achieved some level of stardom, and you know at least salary wise they're certainly not really in working class status anymore. Um, right. I know the finances are kind of changing these days because of the rise of streaming and all of that, so that's kind of thrown things out of whack. But at least during the time period that you're talking about here. And so it, it's it is kind of a weird dynamic that yeah you've got these guys that are guys and women that are coming up from poverty and all of that and achieving in some cases anyway superstardom so that must be an interesting kind of dynamic to study. Yeah, and you know it's it's always you know it's a lot of fun to be to be perfectly honest and to be able to explore and see these these really super famous 
um, legendary type status individuals who have shaped popular music for half century, 75 years, and to hear them talk about or read them talk about, whether it be from a biography or just even in their own songs, that they've achieved things that as as young persons, as you know, kids learning to play a guitar seemed impossible. And of course, that gives a lot of opportunity to really explore what being a fan means, what being a musician means, and then of course where the recording industry comes in and sort of how it shapes um, what success or failure means for musicians. But I, it's, it's a, I, mean, I really have to emphasize this, it's just a lot of fun. And people often ask me, well, are you a musician? And I, I am quick to admit that, no, I'm not. Um, I am strictly from the listener side because, um, well, first, I love listening to music. And second, I, I think I lack the ambition that I'm sure musicians must have for the dedication to that craft. Um, but yeah, just it's there's so much, and a lot of this is changing, as you mentioned, with streaming, where accessibility um, opportunities are far different than they have been in decades. And certainly, these things are changing very rapidly. I mean, the last 10, 15 years have been such a shift um, with regard to what performing and what making it in the music industry can mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I've, I've been somewhat following trends really since I finished my dissertation, it seems like over the last year, there's been such a, an explosion in the popularity of, of individuals who have really made it from streaming. And I, I'm, I'm immediately thought of um, the very young musician, Billie Eilish, who just won a number of Grammys and her album in 2019 was, was, was massive, but it, it, it started from, very different backgrounds than models in the past or other types of, of structures that have existed. Yeah. I think that's going to be a fascinating topic for future historians to talk about or even modern history, present historians about how the changing influence and power of record labels on the one hand is more powerful today than it was because of, you know, consolidations and monopoly and all of that. But at the same time, there's also a way for artists to get around that, by kind of appealing to people directly through free publishing services like YouTube or uh, SoundCloud or like even things like these podcasts where you can you can send this stuff out for free. And so I imagine that's going to be quite a story and kind of an economic story to tell about that changing financial relationship as time goes on. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, we're, we're at the forefront of this. So for us, it's going to be a very big opportunity to witness it and even potentially... Um, compare it with our, you know, our famous examples like the Beatles. And I think for me, that's, that's a model I, I frequently go to for, you know, personal reasons and just being a, a massive fan. But yes, it's, it's, I, I've, I've been somewhat admittedly bewildered by the, the pace of everything. And maybe it's my age that's starting to come out more than I'd like to admit. Yeah. But that sounds like a really fascinating topic. Just looking at the various musicians that have made it over time. Because I mean, you made up a, you made a, an interesting point about the drive and the motivation that's required for success in the music industry. Because you know, when you see people performing on stage, it's kind of easy to think that ah, you know, it, it's got to be easy for these guys. You know, they they work for a couple hours doing putting on the show, um, but it, you don't see the you know the dozens, hundreds, thousands of hours that went into the creation of the songs in the first place that they're performing the. <laughs> the, the by all accounts miserable tours <laughs> that struggling bands have to go on when they're in the back of vans and all of that it, it's just there's a lot of work that went in behind the scenes that you don't really see when you're perform when you see them performing on stage yeah and you mentioned um sort of the miserable experience of touring and you know and in vans and these those type of experiences and i'm reminded immediately of uh an, an article i read once and i i have to I have to say, I think it was in my dissertation, probably in the conclusion, talking about the Black Keys. And one of the interviews that they had given was that despite their success, despite um, the level of recognition, the sort of popularity that they were uh, enjoying, and of course, they continue to enjoy popularity, one of their best experiences or hardest working experiences, probably a better way to put it, was 
was on those tours was working out of a van, you know, every night, you know, you're, you're driving, your van may break down. You're, you're hoping that, um, the venue is still there. You're hoping you still have a spot. Um, and so I think, yeah, absolutely. On one end it is, it is, and it sounds like, and it, it must've been, you know, for so many groups, a miserable experience, but yeah, that, that's where they hone their skills. That's where they, um, they became who they were going to be. And for, for us to look at them, you know, I think the, the average fan experience is, um, I'm going to go see a, a, a big act in a, in an arena or, you know, a massive stadium. And maybe you have good seats. Maybe you're in the nosebleeds. Sometimes the nosebleeds are just as good because the sound systems are, are that good mm-hmm. in the environment. Right. But they're, they're up there performing and their, their uh, success and how they look on that stage as you mentioned, is impossible without the years of, of dedication, the years of hard work, possibly miserable environments that got them there. Yeah, and even though when they go when they do make it big and they play at the arena and you've got, I don't know, 10, 15, 30,000 people, whatever, cheering all at one time, that presents a very different image than the early years when they were probably getting rejection after rejection and, and you know, like you said, the van's breaking down and stuff like that, that, that it just is the kind of the grind that went into the background of all of that. Yeah. And I, I, I find that fascinating. I mean, it's just that, that there's such a, a different environment to both of those scenarios yet. It's ultimately, you know, you can center it around the same, the same group or the same act or the same musician. Um, and hopefully, you know, if you were there at the beginning when they're in that big arena or that concert um, stadium, whatever it may be, Hopefully it, it means the same to you if you saw them in a in a in a dive bar and you know four years later five years later they're on that stage, right? Or sometimes the other way around, <laughs> they may end up at the stadium and then a few years later end up at the bars, which could equally be a fun turnaround, I would think, for the listener. And I, I would I would yeah. be interested in that type of experience myself. Yeah, with with how tricky. Um, the uh you know the music industry is i don't know have you ever read a book called uh, no encore um musicians reveal their weirdest wildest um i forget most embarrassing gigs i think it's called by a guy named drew fortune i i've not read it i have heard of it it's it's an amazing book i think you'll uh i think you'll get a kick out of it it's um i actually recommended it a, a few episodes ago on this uh on this podcast but it's it's where they they interview the, the guy interviews like it's probably like 50 different artists ranging from, you know, um, Peter Frampton, Alice Cooper to, uh, you know, there's some modern bands in there. There's a couple of hip hop and they're basically they, they all tell their worst stories about being on the road. And it's there. Some of them are, you know, just depressing. Uh, others of them are amazingly funny. Um, and I mean, one of those things where you can look back on and laugh. If you were there at the time, it would have seemed like a disaster. The uh, story at the very beginning by Alice Cooper is probably the, one of the best, stories i've ever heard about a concert um i won't give it away so check check it out i think i think you'll like it based on what you're saying here but one of the things that is interesting um that kind of comes through that is that um again just the the grind that bands go through because there's there's a couple stories in there where they talk about kind of like what we were just saying one day you're playing at um you know some massive arena outside of london and then the very next day you're at some community garden playing to four different people. <laughs> and so they said, it's just touring is, it can be very disorienting. It can present you with, you know, you get all kinds of conflicting messages and it's just, it's just a very weird mindset. And so the idea that you power through it, I mean, one of the other sub themes there is that a lot of people get through it through drugs and alcohol and all of that. But the idea of getting through it through your own motivation it's kind of, in some ways, I mean, it's an inspiring story, even especially for the folks that get through it without burning out. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, as you just mentioned, yeah, there's so many um, aspects of it that do become problematic and that become somewhat maybe distracting and can potentially derail it. Um, and so, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, you, what was the name of the title again? It's called, uh, it's by, the author is Drew Fortune. The title is No Encore Musicians Reveal Their Weirdest, Wildest, Most Embarrassing Gigs. Okay. That, that, yeah, that, sounds, that sounds very revealing and, and entertaining. 
Yeah, he was talking about in the, in the very, you know, in the preface of the book or the introduction, I forget where it is. He was talking about the origins of the book. And he's like, at first, I wanted to talk to bands about, you know, what were your best, your best moments on stage and what were your worst moments on stage? And he's like, after interviewing like 10 or 15 people, the the best days were like the most boring things ever to hear about <laughs> because they were always things like, you know, my family was there and it really meant a lot to me or the weather was beautiful that day. And he's like, no one wants to hear that stuff. Every, the, only st the stuff that people really want to hear is the bad stuff. And so he decided that from that point on, he was going to focus on just the worst, <laughs> the worst moments in their lives. And it turned in, it probably did turn into a much better book for it. <laughs> it's no, it's, it's not an academic book. It doesn't, it doesn't try to prevent it, it. It doesn't provide any type of synthesis or anything. It's purely just interview after interview, story after story, but which uh, makes it basically each story is like three or four pages. So you can read it in small chunks. It's, it's fun. Yeah. Check it out. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were working on this research, what was your overriding conclusion to all of this? Did you figure out some sort of a theme or some sort of a, a you know, what, general thesis argument? What, what did you uh, kind of conclude after all of that research? Well, I guess theme or thesis that I that I that I worked with, and then of course I concluded with is that you know we often look at at musicians, and I think the book you just described is is perfect um, as a connection that you know that it seems to be this glamorous lifestyle that they're rich and they're famous, they've got all this you know wealth, they they seemingly have all this free time, but the reality yeah. is that. Um, you know, when you look past that and if you look past, oh, when is the next album coming out or the single it just dropped or, you know, they're on stage at the Grammys that behind all of that, they are um, working as hard as any other profession. And I think one of the mm -hmm. things that I strive to do and I, I concluded with was, you know, we, we look at musicians and we look at really, we could probably expand it to anyone that's that's famous for um, performing, whether it be music, uh, music or whether it be film, TV, things of that nature, that we look at the glamour side. We don't look at the, the hard work. We don't look at what it means to actually succeed in that profession. And if it's, if it's you are a musician and you, you make it day by day just by you know performing locally or you're someone that's massive who has a recording contract, worldwide um, arena concert tours, that the work that goes into that is is valuable, and it's I think one of the things that I arrived at is you know when we look at our our famous examples that they are indebted to sort of a working ethic that is uniquely American. Where you know if we look at depression era, the idea that you're um, you're in manufacturing, you're in industry, you're in agriculture. And there's an economic downturn and those jobs are lost or opportunities dry up. That if you have those amateur type skills, they can they could provide an income. They might be able to provide you and your family um, a way to survive, especially in the depression and an economic hardship. But you know, we flash forward from that perspective, 30, 40, now we're, you know, almost a century later, where if you have those skills, um, it might at once be an opportunity for maybe you perform for a house party. Maybe you perform just occasionally and maybe you make a little money on the side, but it could turn into something more. And so I think one of the things that I concluded was, you know, we can look at these, these massive individuals and we can look at say your Bob Dylan's or Paul McCartney, the Beatles, they're continuing to work as hard as they ever did. Um, and these are guys who are, you know, Dylan is nearly, 80 Paul McCartney's not too much younger mm -hmm. they are you know they're still out there they're touring relentlessly you know we're talking three three and a half hour shows and I, I Bruce Springsteen is another example that um, I didn't do research on but was something that was always a discussion point just how hard these guys really work how much effort how much time they put into it and it's indicative of a long career that if you just look at it from the outset of, oh, it's someone famous, oh, they've got a new record out, oh, they're on tour, that's exciting. But at the same time, we perhaps don't always look at the the other side. You know, how does it, how much work does it take to maintain that? And particularly for our big names, our our very famous individuals, they've been doing this for decades. 
and they're, mm-hmm. they they seem to be going continue to be going strong. Uh, and so I think that's sort of the conclusion I came to is that it 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 provides you know some consensus and some continuity for the music industry, but it also um, illustrates a a work ethic that we see rooted in in really in other types of careers, other types of industries outside of popular culture, outside of popular music, certainly outside of entertainment and media. Yeah, that actually reminds me of another um, thing that I discovered recently. Have you ever heard the podcast called Song Exploder? No, I haven't heard that one. It's where each episode is dedicated to one song, and they interview the artists, and they basically dissect a song that has been, usually it's a pretty popular song. And just to expose all of the various layers of sound that are in each song, uh, and so usually whenever we hear a song, you know, you can pick out the electric guitar, you can pick out the drums, um, you can kind of pick out some of the basic instruments, piano now and then. But a lot of songs have all kinds of other sounds mixed into them that sometimes they're so quiet, you never even hear them, but somehow they kind of influence the overall experience in a certain way. And so what they do is they dedicate each episode to one song where they strip, basically strip every sound apart. And they play like each sound separately uh, to kind of give you a sense. And then they they talk to the singer to talk about, you know, the various vocal takes. How did you change the vocal for this part versus this part? And it, it, it's a really fascinating. Each episode is only like 20 minutes long, uh, but they, they're fascinating because you take these songs that, you know, like, for example, I mean, just looking at the list, I, I listened to, recently. I listened to R.E.M. Uh, Try Not to Breathe. Um, there was another one. Um, MGMT time to or uh, um, time to pretend. Am I getting that name right? Is it time to pretend? I think it's time to pretend. Anyway, they 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 basically strip them all down to their different components, and it really gives you a sense of how much work goes into these things because every single little sound in these songs are deliberately chosen, and each time they record a song, you know the guitar is going to be slightly different in almost every take that they play the song. And the drums will be slightly different. And so the, the resulting final product we think of as, you know, the forever frozen in time definitive version of it. But when they're talking about how they were putting the song together, they talk about, oh, there were like these four other takes of drums that were slightly different that we thought about putting in there, which would have completely changed the tempo of the song or whatever. But uh, anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating um, thing to check out. So the Song Exploder, I guess I'm going to add that to my list of recommendations for today too. Um, but they've got... A couple of hundred episodes with, wow. you know, um, from, with with uh, you know rap stars, um, indie, alternative, uh, big you know big rock bands. Um, it's yeah. So and that's something else um, that I'll recommend for today. But but anyway, the point I was trying to get at is that it really does help to kind of show how much work goes into these things um, because yeah, getting up and playing it on stage is again the culmination of hundreds or thousands of hours of work. And that's something that's kind of hard to keep in mind sometimes. Well, and, and one thing too is, you know, it's also the, you know, so I like that. I like that, the, how you described that podcast. I'll definitely check that out. It also reminds me of, you know, we, we, we visualize that, you know, that these big names are the only ones making this, whereas it's really, it's very collaborative. There's a, a team that's working with them, often supporting them. And that could be in the recording studio that could be on tour. And it's, um, it's always, uh, I think it reveals a lot to think about, you know, if it's a, this massive tour, it's not just, you know, it's not just four guys in a band or in a van that are out there driving from spot to spot. It's in some cases, you know, you've got caterers, you've got roadies, you've got a lot of support, um, um, that pushes them and that helps them facilitate those massive environments. And then of course you've got the local, um, arena staff and management that are making those events happen on the, you know, on the ground floor to, to not to specifically point at the, um, the mosh pit or anything, but. Well, yeah. And I mean, you can kind of see somewhat the scale of that operation, you know, between like the opening band and the, and the headliner when they come out and they just tear the whole stage down and put the, put the new stage together and they test all the instruments and all that. And it, and it's, um, on the one hand, you know, it might be annoying that you're sitting there for 20 minutes waiting for the next band to come out. But if you watch what these guys are doing, it's really kind of, it's amazing to see kind of the, um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, kind of the effort, the planning, the coordination, the logistics that goes into a, a even a, even a show at a small scale venue. There's still going to be the roadies and all that that are out there taking things down, guitar tech setting things up, and it's just it's it's kind of an amazing thing to watch if you're looking at it from that perspective. Yeah, no, I mean, and it, it it yeah, like you mentioned, it gives you a glimpse into you know the work that had to take place for that tour to occur because if 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 they weren't there to you know coordinate changing the stage, the headliner might not be as good as you want them to be. Right. <laughs> So again, we could talk about this all day, but what uh, are you planning on doing anything else with that research? Are you thinking of going forward with it um, in future research projects or what, what, what are you working on most recently, I suppose? Well, I've, I've, I am almost constantly working on things related to the Beatles. Um, some of my research direction has shifted from that dissertation to looking more specifically at sort of the longevity of careers. Um, Last year, I, I uh, presented a paper at Popular Culture Association about um, Paul McCartney's most recent album, uh, Egypt Station, which I highly recommend. Um, that probably goes without saying, but I sort of right. talked a little bit. I talked less about the album and more about how, you know, here is um, Paul McCartney. He's 70, or he will be 78 this year. And so he's, you know, he's, he's constant, he's still out there working. And so um, really kind of addressing those aspects of it, as well as looking at sort of the continued popularity and more so what he represents as um, sort of a, it's, it's, he's at once Paul McCartney, he's famous for his extremely long solo career, but perhaps more famously, he's one of the two surviving Beatles. And so uh, I was telling a colleague just a few days ago that, you know, this is one of the only ways you're going to see a beetle, if you will, in the 21st century. And I think there's a perhaps a lot to unpack from that idea. And so my research has um, gone in that direction more recently and thinking about longevity, sort of mm-hmm. the, the continued interest in those representations. Um, and so um, not specifically building off some of the same themes or conclusions from my dissertation, but um, going in some different directions a little bit. Um, I mean, in much of my career is focused on my teaching, actually. Uh, research is something that I enjoy to do, but um, I don't, I actually don't claim to be too proficient with it. I'd much rather be in the classroom, be teaching, and I'm always much happier um, engaging those environments and letting my research come through where, where I think it can be valuable. The longevity in the music industry, that sounds, that sounds fascinating also, because you're, you're right that I think you mentioned it earlier. I mean, Paul McCartney is still touring and I believe his, his, each show is something like three or three and a half hours long at this point. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Fennessy, who was my predecessor and is sometimes is, is on this podcast. He saw Paul McCartney on his most recent tour. Um, and said it was just amazing, and that the guy kept going. I mean, he was fully, you know, fully on for three hours or however long it was. And when you see things like, you know, the Rolling Stones, who at this point are like 150 years old, but they're still on stage and they're still, uh, you know, doing the high kicks and everything, and it's just kind of amazing. And it that some of these groups are still going like that. And and again, it kind of makes you wonder if it's part of it is just the pure motivation that you know they had the drive to survive. And to get big, and that type of drive is going to keep them going until the very end, or uh, if there's something else going on. But uh, that's an interesting topic, and I look yeah. forward to uh, if you if you do anything with it, I'm, I'd be I'd love to hear about it once you're. Uh, um, no, yeah, no, yeah, I'm still I'm working on um, some new papers, some some chapter materials. Uh, actually, right now I'm in the midst of, of looking at things, so I would be absolutely thrilled to share it. Um, yeah, no, I, I had the opportunity to see Paul McCartney about a year ago and boy, it was, yeah, it was three and a half hours, I think. Um, and still, you know, it wasn't the same old show you'd expect, right? So if you've seen Paul McCartney, you, you might go in expecting it to be the same set list that it might've been five, 10 years ago. And, you know, there's a lot of similarity, but he brings in new materials and he does, I think I would almost say that there's some, some changes in how he structures the concert. And I think one of the things that was really exciting a year ago was that there was this horn section that was 
you know, they're mic'd up. They're they're connected to, I'm sure, the earpieces with Paul McCartney and his band on stage. But they were they were in the stadium, right? They were in the in the stands and and marching around. And I thought, well, that that's different and exciting. And so it's you still get those those little glimpses of change that you might not expect, and that you're like, well, I want more of that. How do we keep this going for right. five or ten years? Yeah, exactly. It's like, please don't die. <laughs> you're too, you're too good at this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, let's move on a little bit to, uh, to your, um, career teaching. So when you, you said you graduated in 2014 with your PhD. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. And so when you graduated, how did you approach the job market when you were, when you, did you start applying for straight for tenure track jobs? Did you look at any other options? How did you, you know, basically once you're graduating, what's your thought process on how to get a job afterwards? So, um, you know, in the last year, maybe 18 months as I was finishing up my dissertation and looking at a timeline to finish, I was looking at virtually everything. Um, and I was kind of restrictive to higher education. So I, I meant everything in higher education, be from tenure track, uh, research type of positions to teaching positions to staff and support positions. It could have been you know, a student success role. It would, may have been um, in an office that was supporting registration, enrollment. So I, I was, I was quite um, expansive in my search. And one of the the first job I had, out of the gate, if you will, was actually working in a support office to help schedule classes, which sort of meant I went behind the curtain, um, got a sense of what what everything goes into that process and how uh, time-consuming that was. Um, so it, it gave me a great glimpse. Um, and then I spent, um, after that, I was lucky to get um, sort of a full-time uh, adjunct position for about another year and a half, almost two years, um, which was still at my, um, where I'd finished my PhD there at Texas Tech. Got a lot of experience teaching, you know, large-scale survey courses, upwards of 250 students to the small classroom to junior and senior level courses, online um, courses, and really built um, a repertoire there that when I was able to, at the end of that, still on the market, you know, we're looking at two and three years into the process by that point, I was able to um, to land a community college um, job, which was my first entrance to that environment. Um, I knew that it was um, an environment where teaching was the sole focus, so I was excited about that. But of course, it was a bit different um, from my experience at Texas Tech, which is a, a research institu institution where even while you're teaching, even while you're working with students, there's still those other expectations. Uh, and so I was I was fortunate to get um, a teaching position at a community college. It wasn't tenure track. Um, that wasn't necessarily something I'd been looking for. But I, I spent three years, this was at a community college in San Antonio, Texas. I spent three years there working with some of the same opportunities. Still um, a bit of a change, no, no junior or senior level opportunities, but I, I really was able to build up my skills further in the survey courses, working almost strictly in small scale environments. Um, and so the process was was long, certainly um, not stress free by any measure, <laughs> as we as I'm, we're all very familiar with the 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 um, you know, the opportunity for um, history jobs in higher education is currently, and it has been this way for about ten years, I suppose, or more. Um, but yeah, and I was I was fortunate to to get that opportunity, and then spent three years there in San Antonio, and then um, just this past year was. Um, looking for opportunities. Um, we've had some some family changes. We had some loss of some family members, and so we were looking to maybe get closer to family. And there was um, where I'm currently working, McLennan Community College, had been on my radar radar for a long time. Really, one of the I I, I would argue um, one of the top community colleges here in Texas. And so they had an opening. Um, I put in an application. So this is. That would have been about four years after I finished my PhD and was fortunate enough to succeed and met all of my great colleagues and friends that um, I've been working with now for almost a year. Um, 
and it's a tenure track position. So, um, you know, it, it sort of goes against, if you will, the, the trends that we see when we read about in, say, the Chronicle or other higher ed um, our newsletters and stuff like that that talk about the, uh, the, the decline in the academic job market. And I've been fortunate to find a position that um, I was really interested in and then they were interested in me. And um, so again, yeah, a lengthier process, but um, I looked at everything is the, the shorter answer that I can come back to for you. <laughs> right. And so you mentioned that there are some differences between teaching at the community college level versus teaching at the school where you got your PhD and all of that. I'm imagining that it's just because it's focused more on teaching, you're probably teaching more sections as opposed to the research school where there's really teaching a couple sections, but supposedly doing research with the rest of your time. Is that kind of? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a research institution, I mean, I, I don't know what the, 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 uh, course load was there at Texas tech. I think I, you know, you hear things that it's, it's low, uh, three, two or something along those lines. And, at the community college, um, where I at both where I've worked, uh, the load has been a five five, and um, you know I, I tell folks this this or I read, you know if you read on Twitter and you read the like the Twitter storyian hashtag, and you mm-hmm. see sometimes people concerned about that hefty um, course load, I've always found it to be very fulfilling. That may again maybe I'm bucking a trend or you know hitting in the face of, of numerous colleagues out there, but. Um, I love teaching. And so for me, that always was something that fit. And then, of course, there's the opportunity to have overloads, which only increases your classroom um, opportunity to work with students. Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, it's a, it is a very different environment. Um, it is teaching focused um, where we, we focus on student success. We bring in a lot of different um, teaching methods and try to access as many learning methods as we can. Um, and so my current my current position I'm I'm teaching a five five, I have face to face, traditional sixteen week classes, I teach an online course, and then I'm teaching uh, in a dual credit environment, which is three preps in their own way. It's not necessarily that I'm preparing different materials across those um, in any wide variety, but you know those are environments that require a different approach. Um, to access, to to work with students, to make sure that you are facilitating what they are there to get out of your class, what how it fulfills their needs. And that's all very um, energizing for me. And I, I, I found that, you know, and I mentioned that I think at the top of our discussion that, um, you know, I, I, in addition to my full-time gig, I have, I work with, uh, with you all there at SNHU. And then I've got another, adjunct position with my alma mater there here in Waco, excuse me. Um, so those are equally different environments, but for me, it is that opportunity to teach and to meet students and find out what their needs are because they, um, I think enrich, enrich how I approach the classroom. And so that's been, that's been truly beneficial, particularly um, I had the, I suppose the typical college graduate school experience where, you know, I, I, I took a minimal number of online courses. It was your, your I suppose, typical trajectory. Um, and so for me to be able to expand my awareness of, of student needs and student wants has just been truly enriching. Um, and it encourages me just to push more and more with regard to my my teaching presence, my accessibility for students. and ensure that they are succeeding to their needs, not necessarily to um, the requirements or the expectations that I have and that I hold to, but if they have different things that I try to work with them in those respects as well. I think you made a good point about the kind of the teaching loads and how for some people that's overwhelming, others it's not. And I I mean, I imagine the, the kind of the thing there is that that's kind of how that type of teaching job works. Yeah. There is a lot of teaching. There's really no way around it. And so the people that complain about it, I mean, it's just not the right, right job for them. It's, it's the right job for some people, but it's not the right job for every, for everybody. In some ways it kind of reminds me of teaching online. 
uh, here at SNHU where we have online only instructors, there are some instructors that just, they just don't like it. And that's fine. That's not something wrong with them. There's nothing wrong about it. It's just, this isn't, this isn't what they want to do. And so I, I, I think that's kind of true for, for that type of position too, where it's just, you know, the expect you got to teach five classes. That's a lot. That's a lot of students. It's a lot of grading. It's a lot of prep time. And if you don't like that, then, you know, there are other types of academic jobs out there that may be hard to find, but they are out there. And so it's just probably not the best choice for them. Well, and I think one thing that it's it's offered to me is that it, it's also an opportunity to to innovate, right? So you mentioned like the concern that it may be overwhelming and that you're you're teaching a lot, you're grading a lot. Well, I mean that that's an opportunity to to think about what type of assessment, what type of assignments. Well, you know, do you how do you um, evaluate your students? And you know, if if you can find ways that make it enjoyable for you or that make you feel that you you've reached the students, even while you're um, managing your own expectations for yourself, then I, I think it's, it's just beneficial. And so that's been, that's been my experience. Um, and admittedly, I, I can think back to myself four and five years ago that that transition was, was expected, but that didn't, it wasn't necessarily smooth either. Um, and so I, I guess I'm talking from the benefit of, oh, we do this every semester. It's, it's you know, it's what we do, but at the same time, it is something that you have to be prepared for and that um, if you want to teach, that's your opportunity to teach. And so I, um, I absolutely love it. So I, I can only um, talk, talk it up and say, you know, we, this is, we're here to teach and this is what we love to do. Yeah. And there are, are opportunities to make your career personalized. Uh, I mean, you, you, you do, even when you're teaching five courses, you do have opportunities to personalize the courses. You, a lot of times you get to choose what types of assignments you want to do. In courses that are online, a lot of, a lot of times maybe you don't because the courses are prefabricated, but there are ways to personalize it to demonstrate your own expertise, demonstrate your own intellectual presence. And I guess that's kind of the, that's the way that you can make things better <laughs> and kind of enjoy the experience much more, I'd imagine. Well, I mean... My my experience working with SNHU has you know really enriched me in that way as well. And you mentioned as well that you know the the online only aspect of it, the the sort of pace, the the prefabricated notion of it can perhaps be overwhelming. I've also found that it does open up a lot of opportunity to to work closer with students because you know they may be able to be creative or they may be able to personalize things. Um, that meet their interest and you know and I think history is, is a course that or history courses are ones that you know we we frequently encounter and this is I guess the age-old story that you know the student that that dislikes history or they had a bad experience in history but it's it's if we find methods we're we're fortunate enough to work in methods that can change that and give those students an opportunity to find out that history um, wasn't what they feared it would be, or that it can fulfill other areas, then the course load and any I would I would suspect any concerns about what that means can be um, eliminated or at least alleviated. I would suspect. Do you have any kind of last thoughts about career related stuff that we haven't talked about yet? Higher education is changing, and we're all confronting big questions as well as concerns. I think one of the biggest ones here in the last couple of years has been enrollment questions, retention questions. And I think as faculty members in, in any role, it's, it's our opportunity to, we can worry about those things. And I think we do. And I know I do, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it's, it's, we're in a, in a unique position in a, in a, in a truly beneficial position to say to students, this is, this is what I learned from say history course. This is what I think you can learn in a history course. And I think, you know, I've worked with history majors and I've worked with other majors. And I always like to tell students that, you know, if they're struggling in my course or if they're struggling in another course, let me know how I can help because history wasn't necessarily my first um, success. I was supposed to be an engineer. I didn't want to do that though. So, you know, I found something that, that challenged me and made me work. And you know, if you're if you're an engineering student or you're an accounting student, you know, if you're in an area that's perhaps not liberal arts or social sciences, our courses can benefit those other areas. Um, 
And so I think, you know, when we're looking at these these larger concerning questions, we're in a unique position to, to address those by saying, you know, a history course may be required. You know, in Texas, the, the uh, students are required to take six hours at least of history. Well, that's not to say just come sit in, a, in two classes for a total of six hours, but you know, here's what I can provide to you as as an instructor of history. Here's what I can teach you. Here's what I can give you to take to your your other course. Um, and so I find that that's my um, my mo. And you know, trying to meet students and make sure that they know that even if they don't like history, that they're going to get something that's going to benefit them from my course. And I I find that just truly um, rewarding. And so I, I I constantly seek that out. Yeah, I, I think as well that it, that transcends to our colleagues, and I'm, I'm, I feel um, lucky. I feel really beneficial. I'm working with a great um, team of colleagues, a great faculty body at McLennan Community College that support me, and um, we're all dedicated to that goal. And I know working with with you all at SNHU and in my my other positions, those have been the sort of direction that we've gone in. So I think we're all looking at those opportunities and. Sort of how do we address these bigger questions on a day-to-day basis? All right. Well, before we wrap up here, do you have anything to uh, recommend to us today? Yeah. So recommendations. Um, one book that I've been reading over the last couple of months and that I've really been enjoying and find it very engaging, very illuminating is Lisa Brooks' Our Beloved Kin. Um, this is a book about King Philip's War in 17th century New England. Um, it's very engaging, both because it um, she addresses um, a very famous event, one that has been evaluated somewhat frequently historically, but she's um, providing a lot of new insight and she offers some insight and materials that go beyond a text only book. So she actually has a website that's dedicated to sort of showing where this history occurred. I mean, I'm, I'm finding it fascinating. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's a great read. Another book that came out, I believe it came out last fall, and I know this one was definitely recommended highly on Twitter, is um, Fault Lines by Kevin Cruz and Julian uh, Zelizer. Um, oh, yes. I've been curious about that one. Yeah, I've, I've been reading it. I'm actually going to be using it or in a course this spring. find it um, to be very engaging, very in-depth, thinking about the United States since 1974. Um, that's the subtitle. I don't know why I just read that to you. Um, but... <laughs> so it, it's really tackling some of the pressing questions that we as a nation have, and we as a people have had for decades and that seem to be heightened even more so in the last um, few years. So I'm finding it very um, engaging. Um, a different recommendation uh, for anyone that's a Beatles fan is um, Solid State by Kenneth Womack. This came out last September. Um, it's about the recording of Abbey Road, so it was on the mm. 50th anniversary of Abbey Road. Um, it's a it's a quick read, but very very detailed, very in depth. It goes into the recording processes, goes into the day in day out of the songs they were looking at, the arrangements they were working with, the some of the personal infighting that we, uh, if you're a Beatles fan, you may know was going on. Um, but concludes, you know, really talking about Abbey Road as, you know, the as a signature piece for the Beatles, but also a different piece in their career. It was the first album that they used solid state recording technology, which obviously gives the name to the book. Um, and so I found it fascinating and really, um, really enjoyable. And as as a Beatles fan, you you think I've read all these books, like surely I'm not going to find anything new to read, and it it provided new things for me. So um, those would be, uh, if you'd like more recommendations, I'm happy to share, but those are the three big ones I've been thinking about and and have read over the last few months. Now, those are, those are great. Yeah. The fault lines one is one that's been on my list for a while. I haven't got to it yet. The the Beatles one sounds fascinating. Like you said, it's kind of amazing to think that after 50 years, there are still new things we can learn about it. And that's great to hear that that's still happening. And then the, um, the King Philip's war book, I, vaguely i don't remember i remember hearing about it but i, I have not um looked into it but that sounds fascinating so i'll take a look at that also oh it's excellent yeah and it's um it's i think i would i would give it my top recommendation if that means anything but it's uh it's, <laughs> it's, it's really good and i think it's um hopefully going to shape 
the historiography for um, a few years, definitely. Great. Yeah, so my recommendations, um, first I'll, re- I'll reiterate my uh, recommendation of that Song Exploder podcast. Um, I hadn't planned on using that today, but that kind of came up. And that's it. again, it's a fascinating thing to check out. I think you'll be really into it based on what we were talking about. The other thing I want to mention that as a recommendation is the first five minutes or so of the movie Idiocracy. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but yes. <laughs> it's yeah. the, the premise is that, you know, the dumb people have taken over the world <laughs> because the smart people have kind of failed to breed themselves. And so they kind of breed themselves out of existence and only the dumb people remain. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not a great movie. It's a good drinking movie, I suppose. But the first five minutes of it are fascinating because they try to set up what, what the world in which the rest of the movie happens. So they talk about how the quote unquote dumb people, which they play off as, you know, kind of like the hicks and the uneducated. They're, of course, breeding like rabbits. But the smart people, quote unquote, are failing to breed at all. And so the, it's it's funny. But what I like to do with that is I like to show the first five minutes of it. Back when I was doing face-to-face classes, I would show the first that first part of the movie to the class and then just ask them, so what do you think? And it was, and most of the class would agree, agree that, yeah, oh my God, it's just so awful that we let the dumb people take over and that all the smart people were trying to stop it, but they failed. And, oh my God, what a miserable world to live in. And I liked to show this during the uh, module where I was talking about the progressive era, because I thought that this this gave students a pretty good insight into the minds of a lot of progressives where they wanted to stop stupid people from taking over the world. And so that gives rise to theories like eugenics and educational um, processes and educational theories and educational systems that are supposed to help people stop being stupid. (laughs) And so, you know, they didn't phrase it that way, but it provided kind of a really cool way for students to kind of grab on to the ideas of progressivism and what progressive reformers wanted um, because progressive reformers were terrified that the wrong people were going to take over <laughs> and the wrong people. I mean, there's a, that that's kind of a nebulous term, but that could be socialists. It could be pe- uneducated people. It could be, you know, basically whoever was the enemy of the, the mainstream progressive class. And so it, it provided an interesting kind of insight into the minds of progressive reformers and students always got a kick out of it. There's, there's a bunch of F bombs and stuff in there. So it's not something you want to show in mixed company, <laughs> but it, it provided a kind of, like I said, a kind of a cool in, in introduction, introduction to the minds of progressive reformers and all of that. So it's not a great work of history by any means, but it does a pretty good, interesting job of introducing some historical concepts to students. It, at least it did in the, in my classes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds great. Yeah, no, I, I love that movie. I mean, I am going to take that recommendation, copy it or steal it, whatever is the best. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, just hearing you talk about the, the use of that for progressivism, that would be perfect. Yeah. Thank you. No, no problem. <laughs> Use it in good health. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you for uh, joining me today, Richard. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure. So, And thank you all for listening today. You can subscribe to Working Historians on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, and whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes about all the cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this and any other Working Historians podcast, send us a message at workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at Work Historians. For Richard Driver, I'm Rob Denning. Adios.